So yeah, my name's James. I'm the campus minister at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, and I'm, I'm, I really appreciate the warm welcome and the support uh, that Christ Pres has provided Western Kentucky University as a campus ministry out there. And um, uh, one of the things that I love that I get to do uh, is share scripture with students regularly. And um, the worship this morning has been fantastic, and it moves my soul to sing these words and to hear the music. And one of the things I love about what is true about the Bible is that it does move us, like it does affect our hearts and how we think about life. But it's not just about the feeling because it's anchored in something. It's anchored in something substantive. And that is what is something that unites Christians that follow the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is that it's not anchored on a feeling. It's not about, you know, like I love all my Netflix shows that have great stories that are fictional and sometimes they move me, but that's different than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not just myth, but it is fact. So, um, so I'm going to read this morning from Luke verses one through four. All right, so this is, this, uh, our scripture reading is one through four. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Inasmuch as I've undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." This is the word of the Lord. Speak to Christ. Hey, everybody. I'm Richie Sessions. I am, uh, I've, I've preached here uh, before, but it's glad to be, I'm glad to be back. Um, I am the REF campus minister at Vanderbilt University, and I'm in my seventh year there. I can't believe it. And um, it's a really great job. It's a fun job. Um, are you, um, Vanderbilt's acceptance rate kind of fluctuates somewhere between... 5% and 8% acceptance rate. So that means like no one gets in. Like I would know, like I can't even, in my wildest dreams, imagine getting into school like that, right? So like that means you, you apply, you don't get in. And so it, it gets, if you, gra- some of y'all graduate from Vanderbilt, that means your degree looks better and better every year. Congratulations. Um, but it also means that it's attracting a different demographic every year, and it looks less and less like, like an SEC school, you know? No offense against an SEC school, but it, there, there were actually, I think it was a couple of years ago, there were actually more students in the freshman class the first time in the history of the school from, from Illinois than from Tennessee. So that gives you an idea of just, you know, not, not a knock against Illinois, but it just shows you that we're less and less of a southern school, and so we're encountering more and more students from all over the country, from all over the world, who aren't just de-churched, that means they, they were part of a church that left, but who've never been to church before in their life. Um, I, had, I have one student from Southern California who had never been to a, a spiritual place, who had never actually been to a religious service in his life, and I, I saw him be converted, and then I saw him get involved in RUF, and then I, I saw him lead our uh, music ministry, uh, our worship team, um, it was, and now he is a member of a local church. So it's just true conversion. 
You know, and growing up in, our, I'm from Arkansas, and living in a place like Tennessee, think about like, do you kind of go like, do people really still, do people get converted? <laughs> right? What, and what, what does it mean to be converted? To like go from someone who doesn't believe in the gospel to someone who does believe in the gospel, and it is remarkable. It's miraculous. It does happen. And the way that I engage students at Vanderbilt with the gospel of Jesus Christ, very smart students, is I want to show them that it is a myth and it is fact. That is both of those things. And that actually comes, um, as James said, that, that phrase actually comes from C.S. Lewis in one of his great essays called Myth Become Fact. And I'm just going to read it for you. And this is sort of going to be our launching point for our sermon, our, our, our briefish sermon um, today. Um, and I hope it encourages you. Listen to what Lewis says. Now, as myth transcends thought, incarnation, that is Jesus becoming to the earth, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from Balder, that is Norse mythology, who was a Christ-like figure. He actually dies and rose again. And Osiris, a similar story in Egyptian mythology. So we pass from Balder and Osiris dying, nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified. It's all in order under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That's the miracle. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths that they did not believe than from the religion they professed, Netflix, okay. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace with which we accord to all myths. With the same imaginative embrace with which we accord to all myths. Imagination and desire, in fact, both and. That is how we engage students at Vanderbilt. I get, I get paid to do that. My job is better than yours. It's a better job than yours. Sorry, it just is. Okay, so first point, simple, myth. Myth, what does that mean? Second, fact, so what? Myth, fact, so what? Let's go. Myth, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke, the only Gentile writer of the Gospels, he's the only Gentile writer of Scripture, Luke was, is writing to someone named Theophilus. We don't know if Theophilus is an actual person, but we know he's most excellent, and that's the way you address someone who was wealthy, someone who had power, someone who had status. And it appears that Luke is addressing this gospel particularly to a person who was having trouble believing that the gospel was true. 
One, because this was the first time in history, uh, in the history of the church, the early church, that the church was under persecution, that the church was struggling. And so a rich, educated Vanderbilt Theophilus needed some explanation. How can this be true? And he says, well, it's all happened, and it's all the things that have been accomplished among us. Another translation is fulfilled among us. The gospel narratives are things that were accomplished by Jesus and seen by the apostles and then delivered down through history. But what was accomplished? If you go through the gospel of Luke, the most wonderful things that humans have ever seen. In fact, there are five different words for wonder and amazement and awe in the Greek language in Koine Greek, with first century Greek, and all of them are used multiple times in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel sparkles. Everywhere we go in Luke's gospel, from the very beginning, from the, from the, from the nativity, the birth of Jesus Christ, all the way to the very end of the empty tomb, people are, their minds are being blown. They're seeing things. Luke is saying, this person saw this, and it said they were amazed. Elsewhere it would say that they were awestruck. Or it would say that they found something spectacular or mind-blowing. All those different words. And so this gospel is the gospel of myth that stirs deep inside the heart of every human being for, as Lewis would call, his own far-off country. His mother and father were amazed when they, when they heard all these things being said about him. Luke, Mary treasured and discerned these things in her heart. Two different times Luke tells us that she's pouring over these wonderful things. Things like people being risen from the dead. Someone being dead and then being not dead. And minutes. And like walking around. People with total leprosy. This horrible disease that affected your skin and your limbs where people were just rotting right before them. Their bodies would be perfectly restored right in front of their eyes. And people would be amazed. You see, Vanderbilt students are just like everyone else. They just have better ACT scores. Right? And what that means is They're just like everyone else. We are so deeply longing for a world that's put back together. We're so, and so when Jesus was here, he was just walking around showing us little pictures, little vignettes of a world that is right. When he would undo death, when he would heal disease, when he would forgive the most outrageous things when he would actually tell people these prostitutes and these tax collectors hey you're in the kingdom of god what yeah you're in the you're literally right now you're in the kingdom of god and he made the religious people livid when he said stuff like that but there is this stirring all throughout the gospels and so when i'm talking to students about the gospel i'm not just want to give them content i'm not just want to give them data I don't want to just tell them about Jesus. I want them to be amazed. And here's the thing. You're created to be amazed. Like, you're created. You're created to long for Eden. 
Why do you think you go to the beach every year? Just sit and stare at the aqua green water. You drive 10 hours on I-65, which is a parking lot, and being run over by people from Wisconsin just so you, just so you can go and get your family and then stare at the water. Why, why, are, you do, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? It's because something that is so intrinsic to your existence is that you want to go home. And you know somewhere deep down that there was a world that was aqua green. The German word for that is Zanzuch. I'm just going to say that again. Zanzuch. It doesn't just mean longing. It means a longing that aches. One, one poet, William Arnold, says, he says, he just described it as looking at a blue flower. It's a wistful, tearful longing for the echo of Eden. And you feel it in these moments when everything is right. The Celtic Christians, the early Celtic Christians, called it thin places. You know, like when you're out at the beach and you can smell the air and you see the water and maybe the sun is setting and that feeling, this is a thin place, a little thin place and it's a fleeting place, but it's like just for a minute the world is right, just for a minute the smell of honeysuckle, just for a minute the smell of gardenia or the smoke, the very first smoky smell of the fall. It's a thin place. And you know what it is? It's reverberating inside of you is I want the world to be like this all the time. And when Jesus of Nazareth was walking around the world, the world was popping with zenzut. He brought it. Turning water into wine. There was something about him. There was something that was shimmering about him. I remember being a kid, and, and I remember riding in a flat-bottom boat with my, my grandfather on, 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 on the Red River, and just like the feeling of that. I didn't know it. I just felt so right in the hum of an Evinrude motor. These little moments. What are those moments? And so when I'm talking to students, what things were accomplished among us? They weren't just like a list of like data. They weren't just like bullet points of like, here's what Jesus did. Put me to sleep. You know what it is? What Jesus did is he, it was an invasion of the way the world is supposed to be set right. And it's, and it's, and it's the way you felt sometimes when you were a kid. And you didn't have to explain it. You just knew that there was something that was so beautiful and wild about this world that when Jesus came to this world, he gave us a little preview of what he's going to do to the whole cosmos. Things that are accomplished. Jesus came to bring paradise back to the world. And you know what? You want that, you want that so much it makes you mad. You want it so much Lewis says we call it things like nostalgia. You want that so much, you call it things like sentimentality or romance. That's over. That's so romantic. Why is this guy up here in his sweater talking about this stuff? How dare he be all that? And here's the thing. If that makes you, you know what? Because there are layers and layers that are calcified inside of you, but there is a kid in there that just wants to go home. And Jesus is brought home here. That was what was accomplished. And so I asked kids, I asked my students, hey, what was it like to be eight? And they're like, it doesn't matter. Shut up. <laughs> I don't want to answer that question. 
That's weird. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, what would just imagine being at the pool? Just sit in the pool. Maybe take a three. They may never come back to RUF and ask questions like that. Because I believe Jesus made people feel like they did when they were kids. And the people who were most invested in their power and their false self hated his guts. But you know who loved him? Kids. Because he wasn't playing games. He would say the kingdom has come and it is amazing. And I've got it all on my back. I'm going to carry it all the way to the very end. I'm going to go down below hell itself and I'm going to make this world explode with beauty. Myth. Myth. That was delivered down through the time. So what happened? They saw all this stuff happen. This was happening. Amazing things were happening. Inexplicable. Mind-blowing things. Resurrections. Man walking on water. All these things are happening. So many of them. John tells us so many of these things happen. There's just not even enough to even talk about. There's so many things, wonderful things that happen. We don't even have books to tell them. So all these things were happening. And then it said these things had been delivered. And so what happened is the apostles saw all this stuff. And Jesus said, go tell everybody about this. And so that's what they did. They just, over time, they just literally said, Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this. And this church started wanting to be a part of this Zensuk community. This community of paradise re-emerging in this world where everything's set right. They started gathering around this, and then they started copying it, writing it down. And so it was delivered into people. And that's what, actually, that's like what happened in like the Roman Empire where they had the Roman road system. It was the very first time. And the Caesars, they were bad dudes, right? Did bad stuff. Bad, bad. But what they did create is a really awesome road system that basically went from like England to basically Israel. It was the very first time that the, the ancient world would be united. It was the very first time that a message could go viral. So God won that one. Though in the fullness of time, all throughout history, what happened is he united the known world. And the reason that an Arkansan is telling you about a Nazarene today is because Jesus is God. He actually is. And second point. So myth, uh, myth, fact. Myth become fact. So it's not just myth, but this is what's so wonderful about it. It really happened. It's not Netflix. Those people, when they're shooting those shows, they have like a tra- they're like smoking cigarettes after they shoot the scene. And they're like, they're like in a, they're like in a, they're in a trailer, like eating Chick-fil-A, and then they get into their, their Tesla and they drive home to their cool house in Los Angeles. They're not those people. So the, the, the good news, the story, the myth, the romance, it's never true. Except once. Balder, Osiris, Lewis talks about, Norse mythology, Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, all the diff- different mythologies, all the different fantasies, all the different stories. They're not true. Superman, Batman, they're, sorry kids, they're not true, they're not real. Spider-Man, none of those are true. They're never, they're never true, except one time. One time it was true. It really happened. I'm going to read you two numbers. And if you know what these numbers are, then we're going to close in prayer because you're a genius. Okay. 31 0.7043 degrees 
and 35.2075 degrees. Okay, you know what that is? Those are the coordinates of the manger. Yeah, on a map. That's, that's the latitude, the longitude, where the manger is. Now, it's probably the manger. I think that's one of them that they actually think is the manger. They've made up a lot of different places to sell T-shirts to tourists. But the point is, it was on the map. Like, Zensukt, map. Myth, coordinates. Once. So when I'm talking to my students, I'm not telling them, like, this isn't the most outrageous story. And they're like, that's amazing. That's ridiculous. I say, totally ridiculous. I said, but here's the thing. It happened. And so you have to deal with both of those. You have to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ, the God-man, had an address. None of the other guys did. Jesus is his real... When I, when I went to Israel... When I went to Israel, like, there were a lot of people that didn't believe Jesus was the Christ, right? And all the Abrahamic beliefs, uh, faiths, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. So I remember talking to an, a secular Jewish man on the plane. And I was telling him, he was like, I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian minister. And so he was like, oh, good. Did you go, did you go to see all the places where Jesus, where Jesus lived? And I was like, I did. And I realized, like I was talking, did you go to Nazareth? There's like a, the lovely town where he's from. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, did you go to Bethlehem where he was born? I was like, yeah, yeah. And I realized he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah at all. He doesn't even like, I don't even think he believed there's a God. But here's the point. He's as real as Abraham Lincoln to that guy, to us. And so you have to deal. Here's the thing. Jesus was real. And what students have to do and what you have to do is you have got to come to terms with who you say he is. But you can't just sort of like, mm, I don't know who he is. You can't say he's just a Netflix special. You can't say that. Sorry, not about this guy. You have to say he was crazy, he was nuts. But you cannot say he didn't have real space and time anatomical existence on the earth. He did. Totally did. But here's the thing. What if he was God? Now do you see what I get to do every day? Okay, so this is one of my favorite things. This is kind of a long, longish quote too, so I apologize. But Craig Blomberg, Craig Blomberg is a New Testament scholar. And there's a lot of people who say like, was Jesus a real historical figure? Was he a composite figure? Was he a real person? And so what Craig Blomberg did um, is he compiled, he read all, all of the old dusty books that no one else wants to read, all of the ancient historians of the first century, contemporaries of the time of Jesus, people like Tacitus and Lucian and all these different, Josephus, all these different people. And he compiled, he said, okay, what if someone never read the Bible one time, never even looked at the Bible? Would you have any info on Jesus Christ? That, to me, that just sounds like the coolest thing ever. Like, is there any ink on Jesus of Nazareth, apart from the scriptures. There is. And so he came up with this one paragraph. It was like he got it from another guy named Robert Van Voorst, but anyway, here it is. This is so say you never looked at scripture ever, never looked at the Bible, 
And all you had was like historical evidence of Jesus Christ. You would know this, apart from scriptures. Jesus was a first third of the first century Jew who lived in Israel. Was born out of wedlock. Whose ministry intersected with that of John the baptizer. Became a popular teacher and wonder worker. He gathered particularly close disciples to himself, five of whom are named. Outside the Bible, I will reiterate. Though some of the names are a bit garbled. Who consistently taught perspectives of the law that ran afoul of the religious authorities' interpretations. Who was believed to be Messiah who was eventually crucified under Pontius Pilate, Roman procurator in Judea, which which enables us to narrow the date for that event to somewhere between A.D. 26 and A.D. 36, because that's when Pontius was on the planet. And that's when he was ruler. And who was allegedly seen by many of his followers, get this, y'all, outside of Scripture, who was allegedly seen by many of his followers as bodily resurrected from the dead. Instead of dying out, the movement of his followers continued to grow with each passing decade, and within a short period of time, people were singing hymns to him as if he were a lowercase g god. Myth? Fact. And what Luke does is it's laid out like really meticulously. So all this language, this is in fact, verses 1 to 4 are just one beautiful long sentence. His Greek is the best, second best Greek in the New Testament, considered by scholars. Best Greek, Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is like Shakespeare. There's, there are more, more times of words used one time in the book of Hebrews. We don't even know who wrote it, but he was balling, okay? But Luke, but Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel is almost as... It's almost as sophisticated. He was a physician, he was a historian, and he was educated. And so when he's looking at something as a physician, granted first century physician, but as a, as a, as a doctor and then as a historian, he was like a one on the Enneagram probably, right? If you know what that even means. That means he was like precise, he cared about details a whole lot. And so get this, so when he's getting it together, he's not just sort of like throwing stuff together like I would, splatter paint. He's not doing that. Like he's nerding out over the details. And so he's drafting it for someone who's like really important, so he's like dotting his I's and crossing his T's too. And he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And so he has eyewitness accounts. He actually, it appears with, he talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus, because the first two chapters of Luke, this is fascinating to me, the first two chapters of Luke, they, even, even though they're written in Greek, they sound Hebraic. The way they're written out with poems and genealogies, it looks like Old Testament stuff. And so a lot of the scholars that I remember reading, they say, like, this is a Hebrew person giving this information. And then the two different times it said she treasured these things up in her heart is because like the first two things, he's sitting there because we know that Luke went to Ephesus. And who was in Ephesus? The apostle John was in Ephesus. And John's house is where Mary lived. And so 
did he meet Mary? Yeah, probably. And, and they sat, she's just sat there and told him the whole story. And that's why we have so many of the, you know, all the Christmas stories. That's Luke's stuff. So he's taking all these things down. He's writing them all down. And he's watching the church suffer and go through all these things. And he is telling them, no, 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 like this is outrageous and it's true. I need to just close with some, uh, before I go to the so what, I just need to do a little, a little historical work if I can. I normally don't, don't have to do this much, but, but when I'm talking about fact, myth become fact, I've got to do this. So just bear with me, okay? In Tim Keller's week, uh, Reason for God, which is still a very, very good resource, there's a part of it that says, we can't, uh, a question that he deal, dealt with a lot in New York at Redeemer, we can't, how can you trust the Bible historically? So we're taking all of these like myths. Jesus existed as a historical person, right? Luke is meticulous, but here's the thing. Y'all, the timing is far too early of the Gospels. They were written too early for them to be legends. They just were. They were written somewhere between 40 and 60 years of the, the, within the death of Jesus. Which means there were people alive, lots of people who could have discounted these things that were still around that were going on during the time of the Gospels. There were more people that were actually opponents of the Gospel that could absolutely have completely like countered all the claims of the Gospels. Paul's letters were written between 15 and 25 years after the death of Jesus and they outline events of Jesus' life that is found in the Gospels. The biblical accounts of Jesus were written down within the lifetimes of hundreds of people who have been present within the ministry. This is really interesting. Mark says there was a man who helped Jesus carry his cross in Mark's gospel, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. He's inviting contemporary corroboration right there. And so they're happening way too early for them to just be legends and myths. Not just that, y'all, the, the information within the Gospels are way too counterproductive for them to be legends and myth. For instance, the leader of the myth is crucified at the hands of his enemy. You would never include that in a myth. In ancient myths, apparently, so I've been told because I haven't read a lot of them, I'll be honest with you. But in ancient myths, the ones that I have read, the leaders are rock stars. They're like floating right above the earth. Lightning bolts shooting out of their fingertips. Nothing's bad about them, ever. And here's the thing. If you're writing a first century myth, no one wrote myths this way. The leader is gentle and he's meek and he's crucified naked in front of his mother. He's, you would never include that. So you just deal with that. So I'm telling my students, like, well, I'm sure they're probably just myth. And it's like, well, that's actually not very Vanderbilt of you because you haven't done any research at all. <laughs> and they realize that they haven't, like, researched it. They haven't even really looked into it. The Gethsemane account where, the, where Jesus Christ asked three different times, please take this cup from me. The leader is like, is like doesn't want to do it. Never include that. That's, it's, y'all, it is actually unprecedented in ancient myths. So much so that C.S. Lewis later goes on to say, like, I, he says, I've been studying poems, ancient poems, romances, vision, vision literature, legends, myths my whole life. 
He says, I know what they're like. And none of them are like this. Myth become fact. Even the idea of ancient fiction, modern fiction didn't appear until 300 years ago. And modern fiction is very realistic. Ancient fiction, totally unrealistic. This is not written like fiction. So what do we do with this? What do we do when we have to face this? It's honestly, for those of us, just go like, wow. Believe it again. Believe it again today. Like, not, not last year's thing. Not because you walk the aisle if you've been grow up in Christianity. Like, believe it again today. Look and, and feel, be amazed like, today about it. Because your life is hard today. We're all going to die. Be amazed at what God has done through Jesus Christ. And read your entire story through the lens of the great myth become fact. Look at your parenting through the lens of myth become fact. Look at your own demise, your own failures through the lens of myth become fact. And right now, I don't normally do this, but like I'm getting to sit with my father This is his first time to be back in a church service. And my dad was in the hospital for 237 days with COVID pneumonia. We ate Italian food last night. And here's the thing. Little moments like that, they can just slip by us and go, wow, the marvels of modern medicine. But y'all, here's the thing. I talked to an infectious disease doctor at Vanderbilt, and he said, no, no, there's no numbers. Your dad should be dead, dead. There's a man in this room that should be dead, and he isn't dead. And so we get little moments, little moments, just little moments, because a lot of people did die. But my dad, just little moments of being amazed, because one day the dead will rise. God's still at work. And so it's a call to faith, but it's not a call to irrationality. It's a call to wonder, but it's not a call to some sort of ridiculous sort of leap to believe in some sort of Harry Potter mashup. This isn't Hogwarts. This is the real thing. And so the final thing I tell students, I don't believe in this. And I ask them why. And here's why. A lot of times students... They're rejecting Christianity rather than rejecting Christ. Because Christianity is as disappointing as we are. And I tell them, one of the things I tell them is Christianity is kind of like, imagine like the best song ever written. Ever written is the gospel. Ever written. And every every version of Christianity in the church is a cover song of the best song ever written. And sometimes the cover is like so bad, it's not even the same song. Those are called cults, right? But like every single version, every version is an imperfect version of the perfect song ever. And so here's the thing. You know, I think this is important because post-COVID world kind of thing like that. Let's, let's just realize American Protestant evangelicalism, whoop de doo it is bankrupt. Shocker. It's messed up. It's corrupt. It's in bed with politics. All those different things. But here's the thing. This is a call for you to, with a childlike sense of wonder, to lean into the most wonderful news ever. I think that's what renewal looks like right now. Is for us to rediscover the gospel, which, by the way, is the meaning of the Reformation. A rediscovery 
of the shimmering, sparkling, wonderful, Edenic invasion of the world that you can actually put on the map. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the privilege to talk about you, to laugh with and to, to ponder with your people. And Lord, I just I ask that you would bless RUF at Vanderbilt and bless RUF at Western Kentucky and Austin P and at all the campuses all over the world. Thank you for getting to be a part of this ministry, for getting to do this. And we love you and we need you. Amen.